This week on The Function Room, we're going small. What's the smallest thing you can think of? Tiny Piggy! Who's Tiny Piggy? Tiny Piggy's the biggest highway. He's a little piggy. He's very small, isn't he? And he's your piggy. He's my toy pig from when I was small. Ruby, what's the smallest thing you can think of? A fairy. How big would the fairy be? Would it be smaller than an ant? Um, yeah. And they're very, 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 very tiny. And how many of them would fit in a spoon? Maybe 11 or 12. Yes, even smaller than fairies. And would fairies, mm-hmm. would they have tiny computers? Yeah. Would they be really, really small computers? Yeah. <laughs> so they can reach. So they can reach, is it? Mm-hmm. So they can reach the keyboard. So they can reach the keyboard. Tiny, tiny computers for fairies. Yeah. And okay. tiny with the eyeballs for them. And tiny eyeballs as well. Now, I don't know if fairies have computers or what size they might be in reality, but chances are they're not as small as this computer. Chinese scientists have announced their development of the most powerful quantum computer in the world. It works 100 trillion times faster than the fastest supercomputers out there. To the untrained eye, it may not look like much, but this is now the world's most powerful computer. 20 years in the making, Zhu Zheng is the brainchild of China's top scientists, who are now asserting their dominance in the race for quantum supremacy. Now, when somebody announces something to do with quantum, and that's a pretty powerful word, I start thinking, what's going to change in the world? And to find out a bit more about that, I spoke to somebody who's actually thinking about a post-quantum computing world. He's John Sheakey. And I should mention that long before this podcast ever made it out onto the cloud or even out of my head. John Sheakey in the Department of Maths and Statistics in UCD helped me have a think about how to get started. So before I do anything, I just want to say thanks a million to John, A, for giving me some vital information a couple of years ago, and B, for joining me on this episode of The Function Room. Hi Colin, I'm John Schwicki. I'm Assistant Professor in Mathematics in UCD. I work in Applied Algebra, the Maths of Communication, and I currently work on what's called post-quantum cryptography. Now John, I heard a word in your job title and it set off a trigger in me. Uh, I'm a simple man, so I heard the word quantum and then I remembered that there's a story running at the moment about how the Chinese government announced they've developed the first quantum computer And this is going to have implications for how we do things in future. It sounds like you're the right man to talk to this week. Well, I'm also a simple man, Colin, in so many ways. Uh, I wouldn't be an expert in, say, the quantum physics behind of all these things. But I do know a bit about the implications, as you say, of uh, what these quantum computers, if and when they become uh, a reality, um, will mean for us and mean for our mathematics and mean for our uh, society. I'm not going to put you on the spot by asking you to go right into quantum physics, but when I see the word quantum and quantum computing, I know what a computer is. It's, it's got a screen and a keyboard and a box. And I know that quantum from back in school 
meant a tiny, 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 tiny thing. So when I hear quantum computing, I think, right, this is tiny computers operating at the tiniest possible level. So when that happens, all bets are off. Yes, a computer has a screen, but what's going on inside is it's got basically little mini switches in some sense, or little electronic switches, and it works on, say, ones and zeros. You might, you know, a computer, the matrix, you see the ones and zeros being spat out. Whereas a quantum computer, what's different is how it works. It works on the quantum physics, quantum mechanics, those buzzwords you'd hear either in school or in the news. Um, which is basically, as you say, it's things at such a tiny, tiny level that things don't operate in the way that we would normally understand them. So say we would know something is on or off, it's a one or a zero, it's up or down, it's dead or alive. And quantum mechanics, quantum physics, all this kind of stuff, things get a bit fuzzy when you get to that kind of super, super tiny level. Things can be both on and off or a superposition, they call it, of on and off or dead and alive. And all this kind of uh, mind-bending stuff that I find it hard to get my own head around. But as I said, uh, that's, the, that's the, the broad brush strokes. So I'm trying to wrap my head around it. An ordinary computer is, it can be really, really fast. It can be very small because they're just really good at soldering lots of little components onto smaller and smaller bits of plastic. And, but it still is like, one, zero, it, it, things have to happen one after the other and it can have one uh, one value or another and it goes through, has to loop through each one of those procedures so it's limited in how fast it can be. But this quantum computer, because it has all this doubt, uh, fuzziness that, you, that you're mentioning, there's just a way more combinations of paths it can go, is that it? And therefore, the amount it can get done is just so much faster. Exactly. It can basically do uh, multiple things simultaneously in effect. Is that it's, uh, it, can, it can compute things that, as you say, a normal computer would have to do one after the other. Uh, it's, in some sense, it's doing, uh, say, infinite number of things simultaneously somehow. It's, uh, again, this is a physicist would probably uh, throw me out of the classroom for saying such things, but uh, the, kind of the, the effect of it is that it can do things all at, all at once that a computer would have to take millions of years to do. So you've got a tiny thing. Now, it's doing a simple task, but it's doing it really, really quickly. Therefore, you could presumably scale it up so that it could do, and it's so small, it, it would fit on the head of a pin. And then all of these tiny things are doing lots of little calculations very quickly. So therefore, say in the area of, I don't know, climate change, your computer is taking in data from all over, you know, the readings for air pressure up in uh, Mount Everest, the rainfall in a particular square 10 feet in a rainforest in Brazil, the particles per million coming out of a power plant that's burning turf in Offaly. And it's Previously, it would have taken ages to process all that to make any sense of this chaos. But now, this tiny, this computer of these tiny, tiny, tiny things that are operating really quickly, you can just get it to do like loads of shit. <laughs> and suddenly calculations that weren't possible before are now possible. Yeah. And it's like, so it's kind of quantum computers can do specific things 
really, really well and really, really fast versus what we call classical computers, i.e. the computers we have now can't. So it's not everything will be faster or that, you know, just everything is just speeded up. But there are some things that have gone from totally impossible to totally trivial, totally easy. And uh, so they're still kind of figuring out what things will become easy, what things are still going to be hard. Uh, it's not just a kind of across the board. This is just a really, really fast computer. It's that there are certain things that this type of computer can do that would just take millennia for a normal computer to do. And one of the things it could do is where you come in as a mathematician. Uh, you mentioned post-quantum cryptography. So I'm guessing that means when quantum comes along, cryptography is going to have to change and the things we thought were secret are no longer secret. Exactly, yes. Quantum computers will be able to do some things that normal computers can't. And for some applications, that's going to be a great thing. As you say, it can maybe crunch some numbers that we could never do before. For chemistry, it's going to be uh, maybe a game changer for medicine in a positive way. For the kind of thing I'm interested in, it's... uh, we kind of rely on some things being really hard for computers to do in order for us to be able to keep our information or our communication or our data secure. Let's say what the example, the classic example we give is um, factoring numbers. So multiplying numbers together, uh, I think we can all do. Uh, we all know how it works. And if it's got really big numbers, well, it's just going to take you a little bit longer. But everybody who's learned how to do long multiplication can do the multiplication of any size number they want. So if I say what's three times five is 15. Um, if I say what's three billion, 700, blah, 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 times five billion, blah, 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 you, you know, in principle, you can do it. It might just take you a little longer. Um, factorization is the opposite. Say if what's 15 made up of. If I say what are the factors of 15, you might remember in school, you have to break things up, break that up into three times five. That's okay. You can do that because it's small numbers. But for those huge numbers I'm talking about, that's totally infeasible for uh, normal computers. You pick a giant number, like the biggest you can think of, 10 to the power of 10 to the power of carry the one, 10 to the power of a million, and add one to it. And the what you're protecting, all our financial information, you're burying it somewhere within the makeup of that number. Is that how it works? The way it works is that if you want to communicate with me, so let's say somebody could be listening into this uh, at the moment. So I don't want to say, here's my secret key, because somebody could hear that. So what you would do, I would say is, here's a way to lock a message to me, but only I can open it. So the way to lock it is I'm going to pick two big numbers and multiply them by each other, by myself without telling anybody. And I'll tell you the, the big, really big number that I get by multiplying. By really big, now we're talking like, say, 200 digits or something. So it doesn't even have to be off the scale. It's like you can write it on a page. So if I tell you the two numbers multiplied by each other, uh, you can then send me a message using that number to lock it somehow, whatever way that may be. Again, we use some very fancy maths. Actually, not that fancy, but some, you know, say, college-level maths uh, to do that. Uh, but only I'm able to unlock it because I have those two numbers that I used to multiply by each other to get that big number. So I can unlock it using the factors. You can Anybody can lock it using the multiplication of the two factors. So in order to be able to lock it, you have to break that big number into the two still big but smaller numbers. So I send you over this message. The locking mechanism is this giant number. Yeah, which everybody knows. Anybody listening in will see. But separately to this, have I... Sp- 
established a connection, like snuck you over the two keys? No. So that's the, the, yeah, the point of it is that you, we don't need to communicate before at all. Everything between us is totally visible to everybody else. What's not visible is the calculation I did first, which was to find the really... To, I picked two big numbers secretly. I multiplied by each other secretly, and then I sent the product to you. So nobody knows, including you, you can't unlock your own message. So the message you're sending to me, only I can open. So the big number is the safety deposit box. I've put my message into this safe. Exactly. So basically, I give everybody a lock and only I have a key. So up until now, it's been safe enough to put the message, to protect the message with this giant number because most people who are trying to get at it, they either don't have the computing power or the time to unlock it. And we trust each other. So once there's trust on both sides, my card number or whatever financial information I'm trying to protect up until now should be safe. Is that right? Yes. So it's we're making the assumption that nobody knows how to, a quick way of unlocking this. The only way to do it is with the secret information that I have. And it may be that now there are computers who might have been able to get at these transactions, but it hasn't been worth their while. Yeah, and you, you can make that decision yourself as well. Like, do I want this to be, uh, okay, just really expensive for somebody to, to break, or do I want it to be just impossible given the current, say, understanding of how fast a computer will ever be able to go, a normal computer be able, or be able to go? I could make it so that it would take you having all the computers in the world the length of the age of the universe in order to break it. And slight diversion here, but is this what happens with crap passwords? Like, so some passwords are obvious, but the big problem with them with them is that they're not long enough. Exactly, yeah. And when they're not long enough, there actually is time to crack them. Yeah. But all of this is about, is some stuff that could be technically possible, but is there time? Is there enough universes yeah. of time to crack it? Yeah, like if you have to guess every every four-digit pin, okay, you've got 9,999, 9, okay, you just got to be patient. Uh, if you've got an eight-digit where you got letters, it's going to be more. And if you've got a 400-digit thing, uh, you know, good luck to you. Right, we've set the scene. The Chinese, a great bunch of lads, have at least experimentally said they have made this advance quantum computing. They can do lots of things very quickly and if used for good then there you could be I don't know curing cancer because you can figure out which cell is going to mutate or you might help fix climate change by modeling the climate but if it gets used uh, by Lex Luthor it's potentially going to unlock every secure financial transaction on the planet or is that just doomsaying so, well, so the good news and from the doomsaying is that the computer that's uh, just been announced, was it today or yesterday, um, that's for a very specific task. So quantum computers, okay, they have this idea that if we can make this thing, we can do all these good or bad uh, things, but it's very difficult to make. So what they have done in this case is to make a very specific thing that can do one job, basically. 
and they can do that job amazingly. And I think story is a hundred trillion times faster than the world's most advanced supercomputer or something like this. Um, but that's one thing it can do. It's not, uh, say, an all-purpose computer. If you think back maybe, well, before before our time maybe, to the first computers, they could do one thing. You'd have to you'd buy a computer that could uh, calculate numbers or you'd buy a computer that could do a specific thing. And then programmable computers came along where you get a general-purpose computer like we have now. You just buy a computer and it can, it can do whatever you want. So... This computer is very, uh, let's say, niche to a specific task, and that task is not going to uh, render our credit cards uh, insecure yet. What it does mean, though, is that the technology is advancing, and it's advancing quite quickly. Um, so at some point, there, w- there will be a computer that can uh, break this cryptography that we rely on and various other types of cryptography, not just this big factory numbers, this, which is just a sim- one single example. But a good few of the uh, things we use will, it's a matter of uh, time rather than uh, when rather than if, um, that's going to be broken. And uh, this this is an example of the speeds that these things are happening. So maybe I read in 2001, they figured out how to factorize 15. And in 2012, they figure out, figured out how to, how to factorize 21 using quantum computers. So, okay, we're pretty safe so far. I think a person could have done that. But here's what they're talking about here is what they call quantum supremacy, which is basically proving that you can build a quantum computer that can do something that a normal computer just can't. Okay, so that's the Rubicon that's being crossed. Exactly. So they're just not. It's not specific to this task yet, but there's. There are the general purpose ones are advancing quite quickly as well. And these specific purpose one is uh, seems to have made a quantum leap. <laughs> it was inevitable. I'm, I'm glad you got to say that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sure you're saving that one up or maybe you used the new intro already. But, uh. No, you have. You've now laid claim to it. <laughs> right. OK, now I'm going to ask you about your work in a second. But just to just jump into this whole quantum computer thing and feel free to say look I don't know I don't know how it works but even just speculating when you're at the level of quantum and they've announced they've done they've made a breakthrough I'm just trying to figure out what are they what are they looking at like at that tiny tiny level is it just the way light is bouncing around the place what actually is going on and how do they know they got it right or that it's working or that they've proven something Yes, what I understand, well, for, for the moment, because I guess they're still you know, building these things, the actual box is gigantic, <laughs> relatively speaking, because <laughs> it's like, remember old computers that were the size of a room and so on. So quantum computers are kind of at that level where the actual machinery to make this actually work is gigantic. But the actual thing doing the computation, as you say, it's like a single electron or a single photons piece of light uh the charge of an electron or what's called the spin of an electron all these kind of little teeny tiny physical properties of the the smallest things there are um but to be able to say control these things and to monitor them and to uh observe them or not observe them as the case may be uh takes you know big uh big machinery and zero super super sub zero temperatures and all this kind of stuff but yeah, the actual thing that's doing the computation is as small as it can get. Whereas the things, say, in our computer, they're pretty damn small at the moment. But 
these are, you know, the next level of smallness. We may not get a chance in this conversation to get a sense of this tiny, tiny elf doing stuff in this enormous box. Like, it obviously doesn't have any free will. Light goes in, comes out through two boxes and comes out and whatever gate that trips off, that logic gate, then that means it's the right answer. But turning to you, you're a mathematician and your area of study is post-quantum cryptography. So obviously you're trying to figure out what are the implications of this new development and you are sitting there trying to do the maths. You don't have lasers flying around this giant box and we're talking about stuff that's the tiniest stuff in the world but also is intimately linked to the biggest thing in the world, the creation of the universe. And you're sitting there in your office. Now, (laughs) I've been in your office. It's a very nice office out in University College Dublin. Uh, But you've got your pens and paper and whiteboard and a bit of a computer, maybe a Dell latitude, don't know. Uh, How do you know that what you're embarking on is the right direction? What does a mathematician do faced with the awesome power of all of this that's been going on so far? So yeah, the good thing is, at the beginning anyway, is that it is just pen and paper and it's just me sitting in my office looking at the window thinking of good ideas. Um, So the good thing, as I said, about the quantum computers for me is that they can do specific things very well. Uh, But there are some things that either can't do so well or we're not sure yet whether it can do it so well or not. So say with the example of the factorization I gave, there was a guy called Shore who came up with an algorithm, which is to say, if somebody can build me a quantum computer, I'll be able to factorize these numbers uh, in, in seconds. That would take the age of the universe for anybody else. So the idea is to try to find some other ways of, of doing cryptography, of hiding your information, of securing your information that for which there isn't a known quantum algorithm. So basically that nobody knows yet a good idea to say, I can break that. If you could say, well, nobody will ever be able to do it. I think that's uh, that's a different question. But for now, ignorance is bliss uh, a little bit in that. And just to jump in there, the comfort that you're looking for, the hope is that, because you mentioned a quantum algorithm, and I understand an algorithm as it sounds swanky, but it's simply a series of steps that that have to be executed in order to, to achieve something. So a cooking recipe is a type of algorithm. The steps that you write down to help an elderly relative work their mobile phone or their remote control is an algorithm. So what you're doing, am I right, is that you're trying to, even though the quantum computer is very fast, it's very powerful if there's lots of them together, you're not trying to compete on speed or power you're trying to outfox it. So if you can be cleverer, then maybe you can beat it. Exactly. I need to, I need to make it fight on my territory, basically. I need to bring it onto my turf where I know I can do something it can't or it can't do something way better than I can do, put it that way. So I know that factorization is dead. It's going to kill me no matter what I try to do. Um, so I'm going to move it to a different part of maths where it, at least as far as we know, doesn't have an advantage or the advantages has is far smaller. So it's going to take 
a trillion years rather than two trillion years, which, okay, I'm still happy with that, uh, rather than five seconds. Okay, and without blowing my limited mind completely, what, can you give me an idea of where are the mad places in maths you might hide the information now? Say, if the analogy is that you, you can no longer put the key under the flower pot, burglars know where to find it and will break into your house. But if you dug under the roots of a tree or whispered the answer to a, <laughs> to the to the wind, you could hide it there. Where are you talking about in terms of new maths or new ways of doing maths to outfox the algorithm, to outfox the quantum? Yeah, so there's a few different um, places at the moment that people are, let's say, confident are uh, say quantum secure, i.e. there isn't going to be a catastrophic failure once a quantum computer comes around. And just to throw out the names, we'll worry about them another time, but it's just things called lattice-based cryptography, code-based cryptography, multivariate cryptography. So these are just kind of three areas where, uh, and again, say we aren't sure for certain that a quantum computer can't do better. Uh, eventually, somebody might have some idea, but it's the fact that people have been trying this for a long time. And that's kind of how cryptography works on trust, is that like, okay, we assume based on the fact that we've tried and failed, that this is going to be hard for quantum computers. So uh, the one I work in is what's called code-based cryptography. Okay, code-based. That somehow feels familiar to me because everybody talks about coding and encoding and cracking the code. And even this week, did they find like an Enigma machine? And wasn't the Enigma machine the... That was what the Nazis had. And then it was... The, the code was cracked Exactly, yeah. And the movie The Imitation Game was about that and so on. And it's, it was kind of a very important part of the, the war. So, yeah, it's kind of, the, yeah, the naming's a bit awkward in that, yeah, I guess when you're doing that, when you say encoding and decoding, I guess technically we would call it encrypting and decrypting and so on. So kind of for, in maths anyway, the kind of maths I uh, work in, we call coding is a way of, um can be able to communicate efficiently and um, being able to correct errors. And whereas uh, in cryptography is being able to uh, communicate securely. So let's say if we have a like a CD that has a scratch, you want the reader to be able to say, okay, there's a scratch there, but I can still figure out what was supposed to be going on here. We're talking to each other on this website that records my audio and your audio, Zencaster. And you need to be able to trust that the stuff that you hear is what I said and vice versa. So am I right in saying that this my coding theory is what makes us trust each other, that any errors between what I said and when it wobbles down the fiber optic cable and gets to you, that they will be corrected. And the words I say are the words you hear. Does that make sense? Am Am I getting that right? Yeah, so in lots of ways, actually, in fact. So, like, firstly, just the way it's getting from me to you is that, okay, the computer's taking it in. It's turning it from, say, uh, pitches and tones and volume into a strings of ones and zeros because that's what it understands. So that's encoding. That's just transferring the information from one way, one thing into another. Then it's sending it over through the air or through uh, wires or however these things work. And then it's going back to you. And in there, it's going to have some errors inevitably, and the computer is going to 
have encoded it in such a way that if and when those inevitable errors happen, it can fix them and uh, you'll actually hear what I intended to say, more or less. And actually, is there a concrete example of that even happening as we speak now? Because sometimes when I hear you, there might be a little bit of a distortion in real time on the line. But I have a feeling when I listen back to it, it'll sound perfect. Like, is there is there error correction going on in like instantaneous retrospect so that where there was a wobble in your voice, <laughs> like a lump of John words arrived in and a little bit later, a little bit early, and it just gets smoothed out in the error correction. Uh, and obviously, it's not the words that are being moved around, but it's the ones and zeros. Is that right? Is that happening as well, too? Again, I don't know exactly how these things work and uh, voice and so on, but like, say, it's receiving what it uh, in- interprets as, uh, say, voice, and then it might hear a buzz, and it's like, okay, that's not a voice, so I can cut that out, something like that. And uh, it's, you know, this is say engineering and stuff that's what wouldn't be on my territory but i would actually just give a very quick example of like what you'd error correcting coding say if we're on the phone line and the phone line's a bit terrible and i'm trying to read out a phone number to you um or i'm trying to to give you my name or spell my name uh so either i'd either i'd repeat myself a couple of times or i would say t for tango or something like that and that's a, that's a code that's basically it's tango is a lot longer than t i'm adding what's called redundancy. I'm saying more than I needed to so that you can figure out, even if you missed the T, you'll get the angle and you'll figure out, hang on, you probably said tango there and you probably meant T. Yeah, so because our brains have been programmed to recognize that call sign from, I don't know, watching films with cops talking to each other or even when we're on the phone spelling out her name and (laughs) desperately trying to think of a word beginning with T, like we we have those codes stored ourselves, and even and I know this isn't coding theory, but even if you're talking to somebody and you didn't hear what they said, but then your brain seems to understand something that it misheard a few seconds later, just because it has like a list of words that it might be a bit like. So, so it's something similar going on there, yeah. Yeah, and that's what the that's what the mathematics is trying to mimic, basically. His uh, his we can do uh, naturally it's like okay here's a here's a bunch of correct words and here we're going to put them far enough away from each other in some sense so that if a little mistake happens you'll figure out well what did you really mean there okay and we'll come to what you're doing next but in terms of this coding theory thing is there a thing people can look up like that says very simply you know who invented it who came up with it and when and i presume like it was a big deal say as soon as we started communicating digitally so the computers or anything like that these things became critical so um like i know there's things called reed solomon codes which are a very classical example of uh, this type of thing and they were used uh, well they're used as i said in cds i believe they were used in um say the computers they used for sending uh, astronauts into space and so on. So there they really needed things to be accurate. They needed it to be as efficient as possible because they had very little power to work with and so on. So you needed to be as efficient and accurate as possible without having to repeat yourself a hundred times. 
Now, you are using this to hide stuff, using coding theory to encrypt things, to hide it in a different place from these theoretical, really powerful quantum computers. So we've kind of we've been studying this coding theory for, I guess, you say 50 years, 70 years, whatever. And we've got some very good ideas and they were very good to uh, implement our communications and so on uh, efficiently. And that's the main thing. So it's basically if there's a little mistake, we can quickly undo the mistake. So the idea of code-based cryptography is to kind of flip that on its head and say, well, what if I have a way of quickly fixing a mistake, but you are going to have to search all the possibilities to find out what was did I actually mean? So let's say um, if I'm trying to say, write, type the word hello to you, and you say, well, a little mistake might come in, the E might get changed to an F, and the O might get changed to an M. So let's say they just get shifted in the alphabet a little bit. Um, and you could say, well, what word was that supposed to have been? And you just basically look through a list of the words until you find the one that's closest. Uh, but the clever thing to do then is to do it in such a way that I have a really quick way of figuring out what word you meant. And nobody else does. So that's um, it's kind of using the, uh, the good work we did in being able to efficiently communicate in order to uh, hide the efficient part of it and leave you with the just the basically the brute force dumb look run through all the possibilities until you hit uh, until you figure out what I actually meant to say. And if I sent the word column to you, you would know all the million variations of the word column and what that meant to me and then both of us having that information and those other things to look up that allows us to share other information? Something along those lines. So it's like, say, if uh, the idea is, so we, we change the words, obviously, into ones and zeros, but we want to make there be so many possible, if you send me, say, Bollum, and, okay, somebody saying that would say, okay, it's probably column, but, well, what if actually A-O-L-M was also a word? A-O-L-M. Uh, the person seeing it wouldn't know which was it supposed to be. So the idea is to kind of design a set of real words uh, that uh, have enough, uh, where it's difficult to figure out which is the, the is the closest one. So let's say if there's a few little mistakes in there, it could be a million different things or a billion different things or 10 trillion different things. And to figure out which one it actually was, you're going to have to run through all of those 10 trillion things uh, until you get the right one. But I can do it quickly. And then I presume that just like, say, with the Enigma machines, they used to change their code and encoding every week, every Tuesday. Similarly, what you're thinking of, the the speaker and the listener would change their encoding regularly to stay one step ahead of the, the quantum Menace. Kind of, yeah, it depends on how you chose it. Either you choose it so that it'll take you five years to figure it out, and so I'm going to change it every week, and there and there won't be any use to you, or you choose it so it'll take a trillion years for you to figure it out, and therefore I don't have to change it. So this is a kind of a, there's these trade-offs in cryptography. It's like, do I want it to be really quick and kind of secure enough, or do I want it to be 
slower, but so secure that I don't have to ever think about changing it. So uh, that's, that's part of the kind of the choice that goes into it. And speaking of trillions of years, moving to the area of <laughs> academic research, similar span of time, do you know where you're going to end up? Because obviously this is what you're doing is part of a, is a small part of a huge thing. Any ideas what direction you're you're heading in? Yeah, so I guess like in terms of so just general area of post quantum cryptography, it's they'd say like, okay, the our current stuff is going to be useless in 10, 15, 20 years, depending on who you're talking to. So that's the kind of timeline where we need to have something ready. Um, I'm hoping that things don't take that long. Uh, like you need actually to have something uh in place long before then but let's say just for myself my own project uh, what i'm hoping to do is just have an idea kind of prove that it's secure under some let's say best guesses and then throw it out there and then it's up to other people to basically try to show that it's no good so that's kind of how the cryptography research goes is that you come up with an idea you give your argument and your mathematical uh uh, proofs of certain things but then there's always the chance that somebody else comes hang on there's an easy easy way of doing that you haven't thought of so that kind of takes a while for people to either care enough to to think that your idea is worth looking at um and then to take the time to uh build up kind of trust so basically if people try and fail for a number of years then you can say okay it was probably a good idea so it's kind of a the in terms of it becoming used, whether it's you know um, ever going to be something that is going to end up on somebody's computer, um, that maybe is a bit wishful thinking. Um, but that's kind of a very long term thing. But I guess my part of it is trying to come up with the, the kind of fundamental idea, the the pen and paper, the bright idea, the you know the light bulb, the jumping out of the bath, and so on, uh, is to get that do as much as I can to kind of give my argument for why I think this is good, uh, let it out there and see where it goes. Um, and yeah, just like I'd say in terms of, do I hope that this will you know be in my computer in 20 years? A lot of it is, there's a lot of kind of everybody, or a lot of different people try a lot of different ideas and then we figure out eventually which was the good one. So, you know, I'm not, um, what's the word? arrogant enough to think that I've got the idea that's going to change the world, but I've got, you know, I've got some ideas and I think I might have some good ideas and then it, we'll see where it goes in the future. So that's the kind of, it's a, there's a lot of unknowns in cryptography. So um, that's, that's what we're aiming for. We're hoping people don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, if it works, there should be a lot of unknowns. And in, in this research, is it the kind of thing where you know when you read about mathematical discoveries, sometimes it's the case that they were looking for something else when they found a thing or the problem they eventually solved had stumped them and then they'd returned to it years later or somebody else had decades later. Is there the chance that in doing this kind of work that you will sort of accidentally on purpose find the answer to something else, like how to, I don't know, put the put the figs into the fig rolls <laughs> to use a very niche Irish reference, which I will explain in the notes. Like, does that kind of thing happen? Do you think that will happen? Yeah, well, so actually, the, see, that factorization of numbers, multiplication and factorization of numbers that I said everything is built on now, that's something that was just studied like hundreds of years ago 
for fun, basically, for 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 just curiosity and interest. Like so, people observe certain properties of numbers, prime numbers, and all these kind of things, and they studied it because they thought it was interesting. They wanted to know more, and then it just kind of sat on the shelf. People uh, still studied various things around it, and then when these say the digital age came along and we needed ways to be able to uh, say uh, communicate securely without having you know met up secretly under a bridge and agreed on a on a, on a secret code word um they, then people realized oh hang on that thing that they did 200 years ago for fun is actually exactly what we need and it's kind of similar with this uh said code-based cryptography coding theory was made was studied for one reason and now it's like well actually hang on if we if we just think of this from a different perspective this could be very good for another reason and uh yeah it's definitely it's like kind of what i do in pure mathematics is just kind of study things for their own sake and i was never really uh, focused on cryptography or anything like that until quite recently uh, and it was just okay these things i'm studying seems to be getting some traction in this cryptography area maybe i should look into that a little bit maybe i could see if i have any ideas and, uh, and that's how i ended up over here so it's kind of you study things for their own sake for their own interest for for to entertain myself and keep myself busy in my office uh i'd say looking at the window but have you seen my office doesn't actually have a window <laughs> so it seems like the key to this is to uh like live in hope that the thing you're working on will either save the world on purpose or accidentally on another way or indeed just live your life happy that you're enjoying the journey just in case <laughs> you get absolutely nowhere at all i kept myself off the streets for a while and that's uh, that's the main thing but yeah it's and then like these things take time say the uh, say it could be 100 years could be 40 years until some bright I- I- mathematical idea actually ends up uh say changing the world or having an impact on say the the, the regular world but uh we just got to be happy with that and do do our thing, and uh, eventually, maybe, maybe not, uh, we'll be useful. <laughs> well, I'll keep an eye out for Shiki's law anyway, just in case. John Shiki from the Department of Mathematics and Statistics in UCD. Thank you so much for your time, especially at short notice, and especially in this very important time in your and your partner's life. How? old is your little child now? Eight weeks yesterday. Okay, well, chances are you're going to be back on duty very soon, so I will leave you go. And, of course, the like decrypting what it is that a child wants is something that probably can't be cracked by the sheer power of a quantum computer anyway, really, can it? That's just, that's just guesswork and hope. If you if you have a if you have an algorithm for that now, Colin, I will buy it off you for all the money in the world. What, what does that cry mean? Well, all I could do is that uh, very cliched. Well, when I was a father, <laughs> uh, kind of thing, and that unfortunately is an algorithm that only works in that one period of time for that one child. John Shiki, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That's it from the Function Room this time. Huge thanks to John Sheakey at the Department of Maths and Stats and best wishes 
to him and his family at this very important time. A couple of things to pick up. He mentioned the Reed Solomon error correction. So that's R-E-E-D and then Solomon as in the wise person. So you can look that up on Wikipedia. And if you're like me, you might get lost after one paragraph. But it's somewhere to go adventuring in maths anyway. And more importantly, fig rolls are a biscuit made by Jacob's here in Ireland. It's figs inside in pastry. And their advertising tagline was all about how do they put the figs into the fig rolls as if it was a huge mystery. I think it's a relatively straightforward confectionery process but I don't want to spoil the magic of what is an amazing biscuit. But that's it. The Function Room will be back very soon. You can find me on Twitter at Colm O'Regan or the Function Room Podcast at Function Room Pod. For now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Teeny little what? Schools in your computer. The fairies of teeny little schools in my computer? Yes. All right. Okay. And that's why it's a bit hard to work. Okay. All right. Tiny piggy, tiny piggy, tiny piggy, piggy, tiny piggy.